Welcome to The World Awaits. Travel tales to inspire your wanderlust. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist and we're your weekly co-hosts. Hello and welcome back. How are you this week, Belle? Oh, what a week. This week I went to the opening night of Moulin Rouge, which has returned to Melbourne and is playing at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne's East End. And then we had that catch-up at the Australian Society of Travel Writers in the most incredible location, Strato, which is a restaurant and bar on top of the Oakwood Premier Hotel in South Melbourne. 41 floors up, it really is worth a visit. Yeah, I couldn't believe how spectacular the views were there. And you can see from South Bank on one side to Albert Park and all the way across Port Phillip Bay. It was so beautiful especially at sunset and it had gorgeous decor too so I'm definitely going to head back there I also went to Alba Thermal Hot Springs which is on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria it was so relaxing there's more than I think they said 22 geothermal pools to bathe in um it actually says 30 on the website but I, they told us 22 and I, I didn't count them but I'm guessing there's around 20 <laughs> Um, and they're all sort of dotted around this perfectly manicured sort of landscape in between 37 and 43 degrees, which is great for me because I won't hop in any type of pool unless it's over 35 degrees. Um, okay. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, so it's 100% geothermal water, which is said to help with all sorts of um, aching, achiness and rheumat- rheumatism and fatigue. Um, but my only advice is if you go to, go there or to any hot springs, really, you've got to get in early because obviously they get a bit busy. And take a friend. And I had two with me and it was so great because we could just sit back and soak and have a really long chat. Yeah, and, you know, hot springs are the best thing to do on a winter's day. And Alba's architecture is just so spectacular. It's much more designery than the bush setting of Peninsula Hot Springs, which is literally just on the other side of the road. Yeah, it really is. Um, and if you book ahead, you can also go to the restaurant Alba 2 and have a sneaky wine. Sneaky wine. And talking of wine, luggage storage company Bounce has released some research into the best countries to visit um, if you love your wine, which, of course, we do and always love a bit of research too. So the country in the top spot might actually surprise people, the country in the top spot in this research it was Portugal. 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 Yeah. Mm. It actually has an extensive history of a culture and a diverse range of grape varieties. Um, the most famous being Port, of course, named after the city of Porto. And the mm. most famous wine region is the Douro Valley in the north of the country. And the Eastern European country of Moldova came in second. It's a bit of a um, bit of a secret with its wine de- winemaking history, but it actually dates back 5,000 years. Jeez, wow. Fun fact, 3.6% of the entire country is covered in vineyards. Mm. Um, the Kodru region, which is in the central part of the country, is one of Moldova's most important and historically significant wine-producing areas. And there are also 21 wine tours which take in the country's extensive network of underground wine cellars. Amazing. And this one won't surprise anyone, but third place went to Italy, which is of course known as the birthplace of some of the world's most celebrated wines with a vinicultural history also spanning back thousands of years. Uh, The country has the largest wine production in the Bounce ranking with 84 litres produced per person. I'm not really sure um, how to sort of what to make of those figures but anyway there you go and it states that the wine is produced in every single region but of course Tuscany is probably the most renowned and coming in at fourth place 
or Spain, followed by Georgia and France. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, Georgia, incredible. Like it also has those um, underground cellars or cellars buried into mountains. But the survey does have a very Eurocentric view. So I find it a bit weird that France is so low on the list. And, you know, what about the Napa Valley in California? And there's some really great wine tourism in Argentina and Chile as well. And here in Australia, of course, I spend a lot of time poking around the Mornington Peninsula, occasionally up in the Yarra Valley, which are both lovely and both just an hour from Melbourne. But you've got to have a driver, so <laughs> I'm going to put the Coonawarra district in here. It's just over the Victorian border in South Australia, and you can cycle along a rail trail that goes through the wine district. But not quite just... cycle to the wine region. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just you so you also need district. a driver. <laughs> Well, no, you can drive to yeah, you can drive you can drive to Panola, <laughs> and then you pick up your pushy and you just fang through. I, you should note that riding a bike, you need to have the same blood alcohol reading as driving a car. Yeah, wow. I yes, I learned that when I was e-biking between wineries up in the Victorian High Country last summer. And is there a I, story to tell us there? <laughs> um, <laughs> it was very hot. I was very thirsty. Um, and I can I please make a special mention to another Victorian region up on the northern border around Mildura because you can moor your houseboat at cellar doors and the winemakers have brought so many different varietals from their home count countries which are really only just starting to come to market here in Australia such as Vermentino which is a beautiful light citrusy wine that should be on your to drink list this summer. That's very cool that you can moor your houseboat at cellar doors. I know, right? That's very cool. All right, I'll throw in a few Kiwi ones. So um, Waiheke Island, which I know I've raved about before because I just love it, uh, and it's only 45 minutes by ferry from the centre of the Auckland CBD. So it's a really tiny little island, but it has 30 wineries and known mostly for its reds, Cab Sav, Merlot. And then, of course, uh, on the South Island, there's a stunning Marlborough region, which is famed for New Zealand's Sauvignon Blanc. Okay, all right. <laughs> Enough wine. Um, <laughs> so who are you talking to this week, Kirsty? I chatted to photojournalist Rochelle McIntosh, an award-winning wildlife photojournalist. Her work has appeared in USA Today, the Huffington Post and the Sydney Morning Herald, among others. She was also a magazine editor for many years and is a self-taught photographer. She talks about her most memorable wildlife experiences and gives us a few tips about how you can improve your photography. Hey, Rochelle. Hey, Kirsty. How are you? Thanks for having me. So great to have you with us. Let's start our chat by tell us a little bit about how you came to get into a career as a photojournalist. I actually started out as a journalist on a, um, a very small magazine. Um, it was a weekly magazine and we all um, basically had to multitask because we had to, um, I mean, the team was so small. So I started my, uh, my role there as a travel editor having to shoot my own images at the same time because we just didn't have a team, um, which was actually really, in hindsight, amazing training because we had to shoot on slide film, um, which is really expensive at the time. So we, we got to be um, quite efficient with our photos from the get-go. So and I just loved it. I loved being able to tell complete stories through words and pics and um, tried to incorporate that in all of my jobs ever since, really. Fantastic. And so how did you get into wildlife specifically? I just love animals. <laughs> I always have. And um, I think there was actually, there was, a, there was a, a particular moment where I was away on a trip in India, actually, and I was writing about it. And it was a, a kind of a cultural trip and it had a bit of everything. And 
Um, as part of it, I ended up in a, um, in, the, in a jungle in central India and there were tigers there and it was amazing. And, you know, I had the, the quintessential tiger experience where you saw them, saw them in the bush and you took photos and everything. Um, but on the last day, I had, um, I just had this urge to go back out into the forest myself with a private guide and a private driver and I had a camera with me and I just had the most profound wildlife encounter um, I don't think I've ever had one as profound ever since, but it was this encounter with this tiger that just um, it just came out of the bush out of nowhere and it just stood at the bonnet of the car um, and just just stared basically in like straight into our souls and um, wow. we tried to we had to kind of um, try to get away from it because you know it wasn't it, we weren't, it wasn't unsafe, but it was, this tiger was just too curious. So we'd back up. But the thing is, he kept following us. So he kept on coming straight up to the bonnet. And during that whole encounter, it lasted probably, oh, it would have lasted about 20 minutes, I think, hundreds of photos. Um, but what, why it was so pivotal for me was I actually could see that this animal, he just wanted company. Like he wasn't lonely or anything, but he was curious. And there was just, it felt like, a two-way interaction, if you know what I mean. And from there, it just kind of woke up this kind of curiosity in me where I wanted to see if other animals kind of um, had that kind of obvious sentience, you know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, so from there, from um, with tigers from there, I, I went and I saw chimps and, oh gosh, I've been everywhere since, but just that kind of, um, that encounter really just, it was a real turning point. So from there, I just got obsessed with photographing animals and trying to capture that kind of connection again. Wow, amazing. Mm. And you've been shooting a lot of um, whales recently because it's obviously migration season in Australia. So tell us a bit about where you've been doing that and, and what it's like to be that close mm. to the whales. Well, this season, I, this is my 13th season actually with the whales and every season I become more and more obsessed and I go to more and more places in search of them. Um, I work out of um, boats here in Sydney and in Cronulla um, and often go up to Harvey Bay or down to Marimbula. Yeah, at various points in the migration and various places, the animals behave differently. So the more time you spend with the whales, the more you notice that, you know, in Sydney Harbour and around Sydney Harbour, they might be a bit more active because it's such a, a dynamic environment. There's a lot of boats, there's a lot of marine noise that happens there. So the animals are a bit more jumpy there. Here in Cronulla, uh, I was actually just out on the boat this morning. The whales are a lot more relaxed. Um, which doesn't make them the most dynamic and exciting of whale watching, but it's, they become more comfortable and then want to come closer to the boat of their own accord and just hang out and relax. Like the whales we had this morning were just like they were just lolling around and it was, it's, it was as though they were in a bathtub having the best time. <laughs> um, it was, so, yeah, it's, when you get so close to an animal and it trusts you and, you know, it has you know, an entire planet's worth of ocean that it could go and escape to if it was threatened by you, when it chooses to be around you, like, that is an enormous privilege and it's just a feeling you just never get tired of because it's it's not just you whale watching, it's them people watching as well and it becomes that two-way interaction and the connection in the same kind of way, you know, I've been chasing since I had that first massive tiger encounter way back when. Yeah, and, and how... How are whales uh, different? Like, how has being that close to whales sort of changed you? As I, I've, 
<laughs> this is probably oversharing, but I do have a bit of a fire in my head sometimes. So, and it comes out of my mouth. I've got a bit of a temper sometimes. <laughs> I can be, it's not, it's not like I'm aggressive or anything. I just, I get impatient. And with the whales, um, you cannot help but, like, they force you to become patient. Um, because, you know, the whole, their whole existence is based with, you know, they're underwater for periods of time, then they'll surface to breathe, and then they'll be on the surface for a bit, and then they'll disappear again. You cannot force a whale to be near you, <laughs> and you can't change their, you can't make them want to be on the surface all the time. So you have no choice but to slip into their calm groove and, you know, just to, to be on that same wavelength of just cruising and... Yeah, like you, you, you cannot have a sense of urgency when you're on the ocean <laughs> um, because it's pointless. And so I think over time with being on the sea and looking for these animals that have such a measured approach to their existence, that's really calmed me. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a calming thing and it's an exercise in patience and you just get better at it. Wow, amazing. And, and do you think, uh, you know, obviously being on those boats, you're with a lot of travellers, sort of what are their reactions that you get? I mean, apart from obviously the obvious, just complete awe. Um, but do you think it makes people more aware of the importance of sustainability of wildlife tourism and, you know, the fact that they're out there and what, you know, our need to ensure that obviously we're protecting these marine life this is a, this is the most like that is the most enjoyable part for me of being on the ocean is seeing people who just come for a day out um, they just want to get on the ocean and maybe do something a little different for the afternoon take the kids out or take their mates out and they're not expecting this deep sense of connection they're just expecting to have a bit of a laugh on a boat and the number of people who come off that boat saying, wow, I had no idea that such, a, you know, such an amazing migration is right on our doorstep and how important it is to, you know, to make sure that the oceans are clean so that the animals aren't you know, becoming entangled on their migration and stuff. And whale watching, and in, in fact, most wildlife adventures I've ever had where I've seen everyday punters going and do stuff, their connection that they feel to the animals through these brief encounters becomes so transformative and they become advocates. Some some more passionate than others. Some, you know, like there's some very, very gung-ho people in, in the whale uh, community. But then you, you get that everyday punter who's just like, wow, I'm going to think twice about, you know, where my rubbish goes and this is why it's important for me to, you know, to make positive choices for the planet because I've seen how massive these animals are and how charismatic they are and also how vulnerable they can be because of the choices I make. So, yeah, I think definitely um, maybe they're not articulating the sustainability ethos or things like that, but that connection is a very powerful thing and it changes the way, you know, the way they see the world, whether it's, you know, massive change or it's a small change, there's definitely a change. Yeah. And, and what can people do to be better travellers when it comes to any wildlife, um, you know, whales and, and tigers and, and all the other sorts of uh, experiences that, that you've had? Uh, what do you think some of the things that we should be doing as travellers? Ask as many questions as humanly possible. There are, there's no such thing as asking too many questions, especially where wildlife is concerned. There are so many... Um, uh, like dishonourable and, and fake wildlife experiences. You know, there's things like, you know, you can go to 
Thailand and pat a tiger, you need to ask yourself, why am I able to pat this tiger? Why is this tiger on a chain? And um, what is the purpose of me being here? Ask, ask questions because if an animal has to be chained up for you to be able to pat it and have an encounter with it, it's not ethical. There is no reason you should be able to touch that animal. If you want to have an authentic animal experience, you have to earn it. You have to go into the field, into their domain, keep a respectful distance and observe them in their habitat doing what they do as animals. A wild animal isn't there to serve you, they're there to live their life. And so when you're going to have these wildlife experiences, the onus is on you to make sure that you're having a genuine experience and that that animal hasn't been taken out of its environment just for the sake of entertainment. Because if you're doing that, you're supporting something that is basically destroying the natural environment. Yeah, that's incredible. It's so well said. Um, so what are some of your tips for people who are wanting to maybe are travel travellers and they want to get into wildlife photography, uh, you know, like myself, um, <laughs> not a photographer and don't necessarily feel like you have the skills, to, um, you know, capabilities to be able to take those stunning shots um, not undermining, obviously, the um, immense skill that's involved in doing that. But what are some things for some amateurs that we can do to maybe, you know, improve our skills? I think first and foremost, for me, like I'm not formally trained, I'm self-taught. And first and foremost, you need to see the image as the recording of an incredible moment that you've had with another creature. That's all it is. That That photo is the recording of that moment. So... Obviously, you know, the, the, more, the more complex the tool you use to capture that moment, the more complex the skills you need. But there's no reason why you can't take an amazing photo of a wildlife encounter on your iPhone. And it starts with actually really looking at the animal. So for me, one of the most important things that I like to do for all my animals, whether they're marine creatures or they're, you know, jungle creatures, whatever, you need to be on their eye level. So if you're photographing a, um, a, I don't know, even if it's your dog or your cat, like get down um, on the ground so you, your eye, you are eye to eye with them and that's where you take the photo because then you're seeing them in their context at their height. Um, yeah, so I think that's first and foremost, like get down um, onto their eye level. Um, if you're shooting an animal, um, like for, if you know you really just wanted to shoot a whale on a boat, the most important thing there is to make sure that your your camera, whether you're using a DSLR or a um, an iPhone or a little point and shoot thing, you want speed. That camera needs to be as fast as it can be. So if you have a sports mode, uh, turn turn the dial to your sports mode, and um, that will give you a faster result. It gives you more of a chance to capture that animal moving. Look at look at the animal. Yeah, don't, don't fixate. Don't fixate on taking the perfect photo. I think a photo taken with love can be blurry or whatever. It's more, it's, it's the token. It's the, the, the recording of that incredible moment because it's those moments that um, stay with you long after you've lost the photo. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic advice. All right, to wrap up, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what's the most bizarre situation you've found yourself in during your travels? <laughs> I've had some silly, silly, like I've made silly choices at, at times. I, 
I'll just tell you this really quick embarrassing one. But I get these love goggles, like when I'm looking at the animals, and sometimes it means that my perspective is kind of as askew. So I was in the Galapagos this one time and there was, you know, if, if you've been there or you've been around um, a good sea lion colony, you'll know that if they're, you know that you can, they'll let you know if it's okay to go in the water with them, right? So you just kind of get in gently and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm walking down the beach and there's this um, sea lion just at the breaks and he looks really chilled and, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I'll go in for a swim. I get in up to my ankles and this so-called chilled seal decides that basically I need to be destroyed and <laughs> he does this like complete turn like I've never seen anything move so quickly but it did this complete turn and it chased me not only out of the water but down the beach for at least 100 meters the whole time swearing at me and shouting like he's, he's just like I'm going to destroy you and the good news is I actually was recording the whole thing on my phone and all you can hear all you can see is this sand flicking like from my feet like running and me going woo, woo, and this seal shouting obscenities behind me but people do all sorts of crazy things like and it's just, they're just, for when they feel out of their element, um, they can just do crazy things. I was actually in this uh, camp in Tanzania where um, the host was telling me some, some of the stories about her crazy guests who had made strange mistakes while staying there. And when it gets quite cold, what they're, they're doing in a lot of these camps is they'll put a, a hot water bottle in the bed. So you'll go out for your dinner and you'll go back to your campsite or into your tent and There'll be a beautiful, warm bed there waiting for you because of this hot water bottle. Anyway, this guest gets into the bed and he, you know, touches his leg against a hot water bottle. And for some reason, he thinks it's a hyena and stabs it and floods his bed. I don't know how you get a hyena as a hot water bottle, but mate, you know, you do you. That's, oh, that's it. yeah. I love it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so fantastic talking to you. Rochelle's photography is just so incredible. You can see her award-winning lifestyle shots, including many of those glorious whale photos on Instagram. Look for her account, which is Faunographic. That's F-A-U-N-O graphic. And you'll also find links to Rochelle's work in our show notes on your listening platform or on our website, theworldawaits.au. And on to our tip this week, best free things to do in airports. This came out of a conversation I had with Lisa Leong on ABC Radio Melbourne last week. I always hold up Amsterdam Airport as the gold performer because it has a gallery of Dutch masters in, in the airport and it's had them there for decades. It's a collaboration with Amsterdam's prestigious Rijksmuseum. Such a cool way to discover Dutch art if you don't have time to visit in Amsterdam and they're always yeah. adding to it too. And we should always put also put the link to that great interview you did on ABC2, Bell, in the show notes because that was really yeah. interesting. Okay, thanks. Um, and, you know, I haven't been through San Francisco for a very, very long time, but I want to go back because San Fran Airport has a WAG brigade, which is a group of therapy animals to soothe nervous travellers. And the brigade includes, wait for it, a 12-kilo Flemish giant rabbit called <laughs> Alex the Great. So you get to cuddle this giant bunny. Oh, my and gosh. He's, 
He's even got an Instagram account. If you want to check him out, it's Alex Fullstrop the Great One Hundred. It's like it blows my mind. Oh my gosh! I mean, what could top a twelve kilogram <laughs> rabbit? <laughs> but Singapore might actually come in close. It has a, I mean, it's a sensory experience just walking around there, but um, there are also loads of gardens that are free. So the Butterfly Garden, which has 1,000 butterflies, and a Cactus Garden, which has more than 100 succulents from the deserts of the Americas, Africa and Asia, and one that's not free, but for less than $20, you can actually have a swim in the Terminal terminal 1 while you watch the planes take off, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that one's a cracker. And back to art, I was through Istanbul's new airport, which opened just before COVID, and it has a museum with more than 300 original pieces from Turkey's long history. Um, so you could have a photo with a sculpture of Alexander the Great, which, I, yes, I did do. Um, <laughs> interestingly, it has not only baby rooms, but also rooms for teens um, and also low-stimulus rooms for travellers with things like autism or Down syndrome. Um, but staying on the art theme, Athens always has also has a smaller museum. And the last time I went through Doha Airport in Qatar, I drank tea at Harrods. Um, it has a cafe and a shop there. And it also has a Hamby's Outpost, which is the world's best toy store from London. And, you know, not to mention art as playgrounds. There's giant sculptures with inbuilt slides. And and one more thing, Kirsty, just let me make a special call out <laughs> to Incheon which is the airport for Seoul, where you can dress up in hanbok, which is a traditional Korean costumes, and do Korean handcrafts in their airport. And it's so clever because airports are the first and the last thing you'll see of a country. So why why make them generic and grey and boring? You know, yes. the point is you celebrate the destination. Absolutely. And I love that. I love that they uh, encourage, particularly about the culture, because that's what, like you say, that's what, what really, I mean, it's the first place that you're seeing you're coming to, to a, to a country. So you really want to yeah. experience the culture when you're there. New Zealand does that quite well as well. You see lots of Maori uh, art um, and um, sculptures when you walk through the airports there. And yeah. I also think there should be free libraries and airports too because you spend so much time sitting around in a lot of them and uh, like street libraries, maybe you can just return the book to another airport or leave it on the plane for someone else. Yeah, exactly. Actually, Denpasar Domestic Airport, not to be confused with the international, has has really great reading spaces with beanbags and stuff like that. And also it's got these really cute wall murals because, you know, there's quite a street art thing going on there and which you can photograph yourself in. So one of them has got a um, – you sit – you look like you're sitting um, on the back of a bike, which is being ridden by, um, you know, by a, a guy on the street. But the guy is actually the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo. <laughs> so um, speaking of Bali, that does a nice segue into my interview this week. And my guest is a friend, an author, and also a travel writer, Penny Watson. Incredibly, like this always blows my mind she managed to do it. Penny and her family moved from Melbourne in the middle of our lockdowns to Bali in, during the global pandemic. And she's been living and working in Indonesia for the past two years. And we talked about what it is to be a good tourist in Bali. Penny, welcome to The World Awaits. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Good morning, Belle. Lovely to be here. And, uh, and I'm hoping that it's sunny and, as I imagine, in the ideal that is Bali. And that brings me to my first question for you. Why do people love Bali so much? I mean, we're talking love, love, love. There are serial returners have been more than 20 times, and that's not uncommon. What's the lure of Bali, in your opinion? 
It's a great, great question, Belle. Thanks for asking. Actually, I don't think anyone ever has. Um, I think it is, it is, it's a few things. Um, the, I think Bali has this amazing, unique identity with the temples, rice fields, the traditions, the ceremonies, and they're all really recognizable, but more importantly, they're accessible. So people can come here and really, really get get into the local culture and the local ceremonies and that kind of thing, which I think creates connections. Um, and similarly, this whole spiritual and holistic side of uh, Bali, which you, you, you can't avoid when you're here, if you're, even if it's just a welcoming ceremony at a hotel, I think there, there really is some, um, some lovely healing that goes on um, that helps people to reset and rejuvenate and revive um, and they go home feeling restored and they want to come back but probably the the the, the biggest thing I think is the people um, the the my my father's partner for example has been coming to Bali for 50 years as you as you say and she stays at Tanjung Sari this wonderful um, heritage sort of hotel over in Sanua and she's been the staff that she's met there she's been to their house she knows the grandkids she's been part of the ceremonies over the years they're warm and welcoming um, and of course, during hard times in Bali, um, she's, she's supported those families financially. And I think a lot of Australians do that. A lot of tourists do that for Balinese people. And so when they return, the connections are all the more special and strong. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, those, those three things together just, just means people are really connected to the place, especially Aussies. Now, that's really interesting because if you look at one level of the um, uh, the stories coming out of Bali, apparently we're shocking, you know, we get drunk, we ride our bikes, you know, around the place dangerously, we climb up mountains that we shouldn't. Um, are we really as bad tourists as the Balinese government seems to think? Because your stories tell the exact opposite. Uh, some of them. I have written a lot about... Um Aussies behaving badly or tourists behaving badly actually it's less the Aussies these days I have to say which is nice and post-covid there's less emphasis on Kuta I mean I haven't I haven't been to Kuta for over a year and I don't I really don't hear much about it but of course that's because the action has moved up the coast Changu. But I think I think what's going on is the more you get to know the Balinese people and their customs and then you sort of realize how ba badly behaved tourists in general or, or or people or humans in general can be um, compared to the sort of quiet and humble and, and beautiful local people. Um, and sure, the majority of tourists aren't, you know, dropping their pants on a sacred mountaintop for a selfie, but the whole hedonistic tourism thing is pretty out of control. People do come here just to let loose and booze is cheap. Places stay open late, you know, music blares till all hours. Um, and really the regulations just aren't in place to keep a lid on it. That's, that's, that's sort of the problem. But we do have, there are new laws and suggestions that have been put into place, such as not climbing Bali's 22 mountains. And then there was the Bali bonk ban as well, which is, um, I mean, are these actually being policed now? When we go to Bali now, is do we have limitations that we should be aware of um, that, that the Balinese government has put into place? Um, no, so the one thing you learn about Bali um, 
quickly is that the announcements don't really translate to rules very quickly um if at all if if at all <laughs> um there's been really nothing more said about the mountain climb and i've the, you know not being able to climb mountains because they're sacred um and i've and i've spoken to a couple of tour operators operators and they were just they were just continuing to book even though even while that was in the headlines um and you know friends have been climbing mountains and nothing seems to have happened um the bonking ban was sort of more about headlines in australia on the ground it really has nothing to do with tourism and it was really more you know about local law and culture and about sort of retaining the sanctity of the family unit um, and keeping married couples together and, you know, that sort of thing. So it was that was really blown out of proportion. But one thing that has, and this is really true to the Balinese spirit and culture as well, is, it, is that, you know, they have brought out a book about what, what, not, what to do and not to do in Bali, how to be a good tourist. And what are some um, of the things they're suggesting? Oh, I... I <laughs> It's not out yet, but I, I sort of know what's in it. Um, it's it's just about supporting, you know, it's, it's like following the road rules, wearing a helmet, um, respecting sacred places, wearing, wearing, dressing respectfully, not, not, not driving like an idiot, um, not, you know, pissing on, literally pissing on a sacred temple after you finish at the pub, not abusing people when you're drunk, um, you know, and it, it's sort of it's sort of embarrassing that that's that that's the sort of how they've had to how to deal with it. But also, it's quite lovely because it's very it's very typical of the Balinese character that they would do such a softly softly please be respectful of us approach. Mm, as a, yeah, as opposed to yeah. Um, um much more aggressive methods of it that's in in some ways it just sounds like how to be a nicer person really doesn't it exactly it's a, it's about being kind and caring and respectful and knowing that you're a guest here and that it's a privilege to be here and that you wouldn't behave like that at home and all the, all those kinds of things yeah so if you um i mean you're saying that you haven't been to kuta for such a long time and that really has always been kuta has been the the byword in behaving badly in bali i know that you travel extensively on on this you know on, on what is really actually a tiny island but there are so many places that that are not um, uh, you know, that just don't get the tourism um, that those that those southern areas get without spilling the beans on your absolute uh, sanctuaries that you escape to. Can you share some of your favourite places to get away from the crowds and to avoid that serious over-tourism? Yes, I mean, I there, there are... Like, where do you go to tap into that, that heartland? Well, I mean, there it's it's like that you know it's about the same size as well. I don't know, but it feels like just if you picture Victoria and and you always go to Melbourne, where where could you go? And the answer is there are many many places you could go. Um, but but just as an example, you know, in the north of the island um, at at Ahmed, there's this incredible coastal road. That, that you you can you can drive along to get up there and it's as beautiful as anything on the Mediterranean um, but you know you're in Bali because all the beaches are, are you know cluttered with these beautiful old um, wooden reef boats um, and there are res that, yeah it's just gorgeous and there are resorts up there that you know you'll have all the luxuries and relaxation and cocktails and whatever you want but you're just in this lovely beautiful different place and you're supporting um, regional communities 
Um, and similarly, in the north, Lavina has incredible. Um, in the northwest, West Bali National Park has beautiful monsoon forests and wetlands, incredible birds, um, snorkeling and diving. And then, no, I mean, people do come to Bali to um, for the beaches and the warmth, especially um, at this time of year in Oz. I totally understand that. But if you're on your 15th visit or your 10th visit or your third visit, you know, also... Um, the highland regions of Bali are, are amazing and beautiful and they're a bit of a reprieve from the heat. Um, and in places like Kintamani, you can stay in gorgeous accommodation and climb Mount Batur or do hiking. Um, in Munduk, which is a beautiful spot that looks over towards Java, the volcanoes of Java, there are incredible waterfalls there that you can go and jump off or slide down or take selfies out or whatever you want to do. Um, but I'd also just recommend to really do your homework on um, guest stays and resorts and accommodation that's in places beyond Ubud or away from Ubud um, because really in the, in those places you'll have great um, access to local families, local businesses, um, the ceremonies um, and you'll just get a, you'll just get a little bit more of a connection to the Balinese people. Oh, gorgeous. So, so so thanks for sharing those ones. I'm going to ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests on The World Awaits, and that is, and I'm sure that you've got plenty of these, your most bizarre travel experience. Go on, hit me. Okay, so this was um, this was travelling in China about uh, 13 years ago. I was pregnant. I can't believe that I did this <laughs> when I was pregnant. <laughs> so my son is now 13 years old so bear in mind this is what I did when I was pregnant um, I was doing a road trip through China a two-week road trip through China and I um, so, so I was driving I got my driver's license to do this trip and I was driving and on um, this particular day it was the last day of the trip I was heading to the airport to fly back to Hong Kong when I was where I was living and I had to get a connecting flight to London that evening so we're driving to Tiger, um, Tiger Leaping Gorge uh, and we come across a landslide um, on the road so that blocked the road that day so the pressure was on to get to the airport. So my dry, so my guide said, right, what we have to do is pretty much get, try and get down to the nearest river, cross that river, and once we're over that, we'll be able to access another road um, and we can get you to the airport. So we drive down this terrifying gravelly hairpin um, bend road down to the river. He waves me goodbye on this platform, pontoon sort of platform to cross it. And then he says, when you're on the other side, they'll meet you with a donkey. And on the donkey, they'll take you up. <laughs> <laughs> they'll take you up to a nearby road where you, can where you can get a car, where you can get this second car. So I get over the river. That's fine. Go to get on the donkey. The don and I'm pregnant. That I get on the donkey, which I cannot. I cannot believe I did. Now I get on the donkey. The donkey starts um, bucking. Won't won't take me. Won't take me. I slide off the back of the donkey. I end up having to walk up this hill. Get up the top of the hill to this car, which is in the middle of all these rice paddies, and it, the car doesn't start. 
prepared. They're trying to start it and I knew they were going to flood the battery. So I um, I end up getting in the car, get, get rousing all these local villagers to push the car so I can jump start it because I had a manual car back in Australia and I'd done this many times before. So I was pretty much in this rice paddy, in, in this old bomb of a car, four or five local villagers pushing it and I jump start it and get it going and, they, and then they drive me to the nearest airport and I flew back to Hong Kong. And you made your connections. I made the flight and got to London and remained pregnant and my 13-year-old is still around today. Oh dear. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I love it. Thanks so much, Penny, for dialing in from Bali. And um, and we are looking forward to hearing more from you as you publish in uh, your gorgeous stories in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, your books that are coming out. You've been a busy woman and we really appreciate your time joining us on The World Awaits.